Isaiah chapter 24. Uh, we are going through a, um, a, a study of the whole Bible, starting all the way back in Genesis some uh, nine years ago, and we are now in Isaiah chapter 24. It's one of these sections in the Bible that, you know, very few people read. It's one of these sections that, you know, you probably never heard a sermon on. It's one of these sections in the scriptures that maybe your pages stick together if you have a, you know, a paper Bible. Um, and it's one of those sections that has so much treasure in it. It's one of the sections in the scriptures as we walk through that these verses are just going to pop out. You know, I've, I've read that before. Where did I read that before? And we're going to find that the, many of these verses are quoted even in the New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1, it says this, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. He distorts its surface, scatters abroad its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with uh, the debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away and the world languishes and fades away and the haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. The new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down, every house is shut up so that none may go in. There is a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city, uh, desolation is left, and the gate is stricken uh, with destruction. Verse 13. And when it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be the sh like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes, when the vintage is done, they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. And so, Father, tonight, as we read your word, as we go through these chapters in the, the middle of Isaiah, that you would help us. Maybe for the first time ever reading these chapters, maybe for the first time ever reading these verses that you would um, quicken our hearts, that you would reveal something to us tonight, uh, that, that we would take away something that um, maybe we've never even seen before in your scriptures. I thank you so much for these, my friends and my family here tonight, those that may be uh, listening online, that you would just bless them mightily, that all those stresses of the day, the, the baggage of the week would be taken away. 
We would lay those things before you. I thank you so much for the preparation that Kat and, and, and Rebecca have put into the worship service. And despite all the things that they have been going through this week, that they have um, stood up here and led us in worship. All, all the stresses that I know that they face, that you have blessed us tonight through them and their humility, Lord. I thank you so much for the men in the back, for John and Jeff, that, that make sure that all these behind-the-scene things, getting here earlier than everyone else and making sure that, that we have the sound for uh, the, the men that are throughout this audience that are making sure everything is going correctly for uh, John and, and, and Tom and David and Kevin and all those guys outside that are making sure our cars aren't being stolen. Uh, for Noah and for Gage, Lord, and, and then, of course, the kids' ministry, Vanessa. I ask that you just bless her, Lord. Thank you so much for her hard work behind the scenes, so many things that she does. Lord, I ask that you would help us to recognize those that work so tirelessly behind the scenes in this church, Lord. I thank you so much for their servants' hearts, the example to us, the example to us, Lord. And so, Lord, tonight, we thank you for being here. We thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen and amen. We come to this section in the scriptures. And we, we you know, many times when we come to these types of, of chapters or, or verses where we see the, you know, the wrath of God, where we see God bringing down judgment, we, we accuse God of being mean. We, we accuse God of, of uh, throughout the scriptures at times as we see the fire and the brimstone or, or the various times when God rains down his wrath upon a nation or people group. And we accuse God of being this wrathful God, the God of the Old Testament, right? The, the one who, you know, is wrathful, angry. Uh, but if you actually read the Bible, not, not even including the New Testament, just the Old Testament as a whole, you see that there's centuries and centuries of God's patience. There, there's centuries and centuries of God's mercy. There's centuries and centuries of God's warning the people over and over and over again before the discipline comes, before the punishment comes. And, and God is so gracious over and over. And we can see it in the life of not only the nation of Israel, but hopefully we can see it in our own life as well. How many times did you deserve punishment now? I know I have. But God is gracious over and over and over. It's only the times when we get caught, you know. The, the times when, you know, something bad may happen in our lives and we have to examine ourselves and, and say, Lord, please forgive me for these sins. And this is where Israel is at now. Because Israel is facing the consequences of their uh, sin. These extreme long periods of times, centuries even before God brings his discipline and his punishment. In Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1, as we are reading through, 
this chapter of God's judgment, warning of his judgment uh, to come. And just to put it in context, we've seen from the beginning of the book of Isaiah, not only the glory of God, Isaiah is one of those prophets that gets to actually go into the very presence of a holy, holy, holy God. But also we get to see the prophetic word that this holy God is going to one day become incarnate, come to uh, the earth in the nature of Jesus Christ uh, himself. Uh, we, we see that he will be born from a virgin. We see that he'll be born in a manger. And later on, we will see how he dies in great uh, detail. And so the book of Isaiah, as we're walking through it, and we may read, you know, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 53. But all these middle chapters are just as important because they set the stage for the prophetic word of God. In fact, in verse 1 there it says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. He distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. Yeah, I, I remember one of the times that God scattered the not just a people group, but the entire world. Remember at the Tower of Babel? What happened at the Tower of Babel? Uh, the people of the world all spoke one language at that time. There, there was unity amongst the people. And what did they say? We will make a tower that stretches all the way to the heavens. And God, knowing that they could eventually accomplish this with their own ingenuity, what does he do? In Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, we see that he scattered the inhabitants of the earth when the Tower of Babel was being built. And this is exactly what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. Because they too have become proud. That they too have exalted themselves up. Not relying upon the God who created them. Not the, relying upon the God of the universe. Not the, relying upon the God who chose the nation of Israel out of all the nations on the planet. But rather choosing man-made idols. Choosing themselves their pride, and their own accomplishments. And we can see, I can see myself in those same examples. I, I can see us in those same examples. I can see America in those same examples. So God shows no partiality. That There is fairness everywhere because everybody will be disciplined. Everybody will be punished. In fact, that's what it says in verse 2. Doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor, doesn't matter your position in life, doesn't matter your skin color, doesn't matter your culture, what's going to happen? As it says here, as with the people, so with the priests, those that are in the auditorium, those that are in the temple seats, and those that are standing up on the stage, doesn't matter. As with the servant, so with the master, those that have authority and those that serve. As with the maid or with the mistress, those that are male or female or any form of authority. As with the buyer, so with the seller. Whether you're rich, whether you're buying, whether you're poor, whether you're the lender, whether you're the borrower, whether you're the creditor, or so with the debtor. Everybody is going to be mixed in the punishment and discipline of God. What will happen? Verse 3, the land shall be entirely emptied 
and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken this word. When we get to the book of Jeremiah, we're going to see this happen literally where the land is going to be emptied out and the last of the people to leave is going to be Jeremiah and those that are in the deepest form of poverty in the land of Israel. You see, God emptied out the nation of Israel in three steps. The Assyrians came in. They destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They scattered them in 722 B.C. And then the Babylonians come into the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. And first, they take away, you know, as we talked about last week, the, the handsome and those with talent and those with abilities. People like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the book of Daniel. And then they come a second time and they take away the, the blue-collar workers, the ones that, you know, had some form of skill or talent. Those were taken away with Ezekiel during the second exile. And then, of course, the very last ones that were there, Jeremiah and the riffraff. And Isaiah is warning them that this will happen. Your status in life your, your you know, retirement account, all your wealth will not save you from what is to come. Everybody will be plundered. Everybody will be taken away. Verse 4, the earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth uh, language. We've been seeing again in the book of Isaiah the contrast between pride and humility. What does God do to the haughty or the proud? He brings them down. It doesn't matter if you're Lucifer himself, the most beautiful of all the angels. God brings them uh, down as he's going to do to those in Israel itself. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the law, charged or changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Rather than keeping the law, what do they do instead? They change the law. They change it to fit their lifestyle. They, they change it in such a way that they can now say, well, I'm keeping the law. I, I'm doing what is legal, and unfortunately, not only did it happen during the time that this was written some 2,700 years ago, but it happens today, right? Where, where laws can be changed from calling evil good and then good, of course, evil. But worse than that, worse than just changing the you know, uh, the civic laws or, or the national laws. But can you imagine that last phrase there? What have they done with the covenant that God has given just to Israel out of all the nations on the planet? To Israel itself, that covenant that was stricken between God and Abraham, again, God and Moses, again, God and David, over and over and over again, you have this covenant that is given to the people of Israel. And what have they done with that covenant? They've broken it. And if you ever read the book of Hosea, and by the way, if you're you know, a guy, you can show up on Wednesday mornings where we just started the book of Hosea. 
And you see it very, very, very clearly in that book. Verse 6, therefore the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. The new wine fails, the vine languishes all, the merry-hearted uh, sigh. They're trying to dull their senses. They're trying to get that high again. They're trying to get that joy or that happiness again through addictions, through wine and drugs and whatever it may be. And is it solving the problem? No. And anyone that's ever been caught in an addiction or, or struggled with addiction, you understand that that addiction no longer brings you happiness. It just becomes a hard burden on your life that you're trying to break. And of course, we know it can only be broken through Jesus Christ. Or... As it says in, in verse 8, the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases, all the entertainment, what's going to happen to the entertainment? Because that can be just as addictive as anything else, anyone that, you know, on Twitter or, or YouTube or all the various things that we have they try to get shorter and shorter and shorter and more information in that small bite that brings about some form of joy. Every time you have to get uh, deeper and deeper and more and more into that before you can laugh again, before you have any form of a, a, a joy coming out of your heart. Everything becomes sad. As it says here, they shall not drink. Wine with a song, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. What is now happening within the nation of Israel itself? They no longer can find any form of joy. What happens in a life that is joyless, hopeless? Where nothing can happen except for confusion. In fact, that word confusion is the exact same word that we see all the way back in the very second verse of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 uh, verse 2 where it says the world or the earth was without form. It was confusing. It was confusing in terms of all the things that were just floating around until God brought order and brought all those things into existence from the very beginning when God created the earth. Confusion into order. Only God can do that. In verse 11, it says, there is a cry for wine in the street. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone and the city desolation is left and the gate is stricken with destruction. And when it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. This is the same illustration that Jesus uses in the New Testament with the shaking of the olive tree that God will shake the earth when he comes uh, back. Verse 14 and 15, they shall lift their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. And the verse that we stopped with, therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light, the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. 
You see this imagery, it suggests that not only the east and the west, the, the, where the Mediterranean Ocean is and the, the Jordan uh, River is, from east to west, everyone should give the Lord the praise that is due him. When we are mirthless in our life, when we are joyless in our life, who's the only one that can refill our cup? Who's the only one that can give us back our joy? Who's the only one that can fill us up again? It's not the temporary things of the world. Who is it? It's only through God. And hopefully you felt that tonight as we worship the Lord. Verse 16, from the ends of the earth, we have heard songs, glory to the righteous. But I said, I am ruined, I am ruined. Woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very uh, treacherously. Don't you hate it when someone comes to you with a smile and all you want to do is wallow in your sorrow, wallow in your pain. And that person that may be coming with joy and trying to encourage you, um, you just shun them. It's one of those things that as it says here, three times, or four times, excuse me, treachery, 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 over and over and over again. Fear in the pit and the snare upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in a snare from the window, for the windows from on high are opened and the foundations of the earth are shaken. You run from one place to another and you can't escape the discipline, the punishment that is coming. It's just like Jonah himself. What did Jonah try to do? He ran away from God. He went, ran to the opposite end of where God told him to do. He had to pay for the ticket, by the way, with his own money. And what did God do? He brought him a free passage in the middle of a whale or a fish and brought him back to the place where God had for him at the beginning. We cannot escape God. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise. Again, we understand this. We live in California, right? When the earth literally shakes, this is what will be happening on that day. In fact, if you read the beginning of the book of Isaiah or here with us when we were reading uh, the book of Isaiah, there was this huge earthquake during the time of King Uzziah that literally shook the nation of Israel. Fear in the pit and the snare are upon you, inhabitant of the earth, and it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. I just read that, verse 21, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones, and on the earth, the kings of the earth, they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and it shall be shut up in the uh, prison. What will happen even to those that are in those places that we think are the most secure, the palaces, the mansions, the what people that are even well off financially? What will happen to them? 
Will there be any escape? No, there won't. And after many days, they will be punished. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, those angels that chose to side with Lucifer himself when he and his pride exalted himself and wanted the praise of the entire creation, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. If God judges the angels themselves, what about us? What about human beings? What about if we are wealthy or poor? What if we are well-off or not well-off? What if we are influencers or not influencers? It doesn't matter in the standards of God. Verse 23, then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously who deserves always to be exalted just as we sang tonight the exalted one the one of the entire universe who deserves our praise and if you've ever you know even just this last couple of days right with the olympics what happens when that guy light or sticks the landing or when that swimmer just Barely, just within literally hundreds of a second, beats out the other swimmers. What do you do? You scream, you yell, all right. Or, or if something happens where they uh, twist their ankle or they take too many steps or they fall, what do we do? We, we, we groan. We understand what they're going through. Maybe not to the level that they know, but, but we, we, we feel it, right, when we see it. More so, God himself. You see, in chapter 25, it starts out with this amazing praise song. Oh, Lord, you are my God. Very personal from the lips of Isaiah himself. After he quotes chapter 24, he now goes into the praise of God after understanding that God is going to be judging and disciplining the nation of Israel when he could be saying, oh, woe is me. What does he do instead? He praises God in the midst of the worst situations in our lives the only thing that will give us hope or joy is to turn everything that is mirthless and joyless into an exaltation a hymn a praise song to god himself as isaiah does oh lord you are my god i will exalt you i will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, just like Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. And if you've ever read the book of Lamentations, rather than just those three verses in the middle of Lamentations that we stick on our, our mirror, we stick on a refrigerator, those refrigerator verses that we take out of Lamentations, many times out of con context, where he says this, I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. His loving kindness never fa fails. 
great is thy faithfulness. We put that on our, our mirror without any of the context around it. And when you read the first three chapters and you read the last three chapters, these, you know, amazing chapters, the, these five chapters of Lamentations, and you read it in context and it is horrendous. Literally where people are eating their own children. And in the midst of that horrific situation where Jeremiah is crying out from the pit, he cries out just like every single day when I know that sun is rising, I can count upon God's mercies, loving kindness, because he is a faithful God. And just like we see here, it's all the wonderful things that we see. It's all the faithfulness and the truth of God that I must gauge my life upon in the midst of the stresses of the day. In the midst of all the things that may be weighing us down. We can still exalt God. We can still praise God. Why? Because his truth is always absolute. His truth is always the standard. Verse 2, for you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. Do you see what this is saying? It's saying that only the strong can praise God. Only those that know where their strength truly comes from praise Him. Because everybody else, they're just like, you know, sand. They're just like waves. They just come and go depending upon the circumstances. Depending upon where, whether things are going good in my life or things are going bad in my life. And I accuse God when things are going bad, and I praise God and lift my hands and shout and all the good things that are happening in my life. But as soon as something bad happens, oh, woe is me. You see, it's those that know who God is, that gets their strength from God. They praise Him not just in the good times, but they praise Him also in the hard times as well. Verse 6, by the way, I mean, Isaiah chapter 25, uh, the, I, you know, I know this is the first time I've ever taught on it. I, first time I've ever heard it, you know, probably read in church. To hear these things studied and read, it is a privilege to be able to read this chapter. Verse 6, and in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all the nations. And yes, I know that God has chosen the nation of Israel as his people but what has he done with the rest of the world? Does God still reach out to us? Even those of us that don't even have a single drop of Jewish blood in our body. No, no Jewish lineage at all. 
does God still reach out to the Gentiles too? Even in the Old Testament, by the way. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever, thank God. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. I can't tell you how many people that I've talked to just within the last, you know, two or three weeks. My dad passed away on July the 2nd, and, and it seems like every couple of days someone calls me. My dad died. My father died. My, my loved one died. My brother died. Someone in my family passed away. And guess what you can do in that situation? You can be a comfort to them. Even, yes, you may be weeping internally yourself. You may going, be going through a, a hard time yourself, struggling with the issues of what it means to, le uh, to lose a loved one. But can God use even the worst of situations to heal other people through your pain and your hurts? Yes, he does. Over. And over again, and by the way, not just in, you know, the passing of a loved one, but also in, in a broken marriage or in health issues or financial issues, God can do the exact same thing. In fact, this word death that we see literally means an enlarged mouth. It's this picture that it just swallows everything. It just consumes all that is in it. And, can't, and the amazing thing is that God has conquered death. And how did he do it? Through his son, uh, Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord will swallow up death. We read this, of course, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, where, where God says he'll wipe away all of our tears. He will remove them all, all the sorrow, all the pain. In Revelation chapter 7, 7 verse 17, it says, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All the pain and the sorrow will be wiped away. Or in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, where it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more, what's that word say? Pain. And we just came from Debbie Dahl's house this afternoon. And, and she was, had just been in surgery and tremendous pain. Tremendous pain. My dad was on a, a, you know, an oxygen machine for the past three years of his life. His knee had been replaced. The pain that he felt and all the sorrow that he was going through, all the, the, the you know, the, the trying to breathe every single breath. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt where my dad is right now. Does he have any more pain? No. He has a new body. And, and you know, to, to understand that he is in heaven, you know, enjoying, you know, a pain-free eternal life forever and ever and ever and ever. And we too can also enjoy that one day. 
You see this term, the divine name of Yahweh is the one who is wiping away all of our tears because of what God has done for us. Verse 9, it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The very name of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, this morning in the men's Bible study, in the book of Hosea, we learned that there was three different names throughout the scriptures. Joshua means salvation. Hosea means salvation. And Jesus in the New Testament means salvation. Every single one of these, whether it's a Hebrew name or a Greek name, they mean salvation. And when God comes to the earth, what does he bring? Salvation. Verse 10, for on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest and Moab will be trampled down under him. He has straws trampled down for the refuse heap and he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim and he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands, the fortress of the high fort of your walls. He will bring down, lay low and bring to the ground, down to the dust. That Olympic swimmer that is reaching out within milliseconds to touch the wall before everyone else. Isn't that an amazing imagery? And it just so happened that we're in this chapter reading this verse during the Olympics. You talk about the majesty and guiding power of the hand of God in studying the Bible. Don't you love it when you do a devotion and all of a sudden, wow, if I had read this a week earlier or later on in my life, I would have missed it. But God allowed certain things in my life now so that I would recognize it. It would pop out into life in my own eyes at this time. God is truly amazing. Verse 26, or chapter 26. In that day, this song in the land of Judah we have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for the walls and the bulwarks upon the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You see, this is a pilgrim song, just like many of the Psalms in the, the Old Testament. Uh, some, you know, a couple books before the book of Isaiah. Yeah, the, the, the songs that were songs of ascents where, where as they were traveling up to Jerusalem, they would sing these Psalms. And Isaiah is doing something very similar as he is writing chapter 26. In fact, in verse 3, it says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You've probably heard that verse before. It is in Isaiah chapter 26. It is one of these amazing verses that I understand that if I am in the center of God's will, nothing can hurt me. It's only when I'm anywhere else that I will call or fall into problems. It's only in the center of God's will that I truly have peace. And, and just as Paul describes peace in the New Testament, it's a peace that passes all understanding. I mean, it's confounding us. How can I have peace in a, a situation where I should be worrying 
And it's only God can give that, that kind of peace. It's only God that can bless us with perfect peace, as it says here. And, and by the way, this word perfect peace literally is the same word repeated, just like when we were studying the, the word holy in chapter uh, 6 of Isaiah, where it repeated holy, 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 holiest, right? In this uh, context, it's repeated twice, so it would be the comparative. So everything else in the world has no peace except for when we are in the center of God's will, where our peace, peace truly confounds every part of our understanding. Why? Because only God can give it to us in the midst of a situation where we should be literally worrying about it. And that's because in verse 4, as it says, trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. Where does that peace come from? Where does that joy come from? Where does that strength come from? And by the way, this is the nickname of God, the, the shortened form of Yahweh in the, of the Old Testament, the shortened form of name that, that God gave to Moses as he was, you know, taking his sandals off before that burning bush. And, and God gives him his name, I am that I am. Yah, this term, I am, is the only one who can give us perfect peace. Why? Because he is forever and we can trust in him. Verse 5, for he brings down those who dwell on high again. The haughty, the proud brought down. The lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down and the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Why does that person get that thing? Why does the God bless that person? Or why, why does that person have a nice house? Or, or why does that person have a, you know, a, a, a boat or an RV and, and they didn't even work for it? They just sued and they got it. The, the keeping up with the Joneses, the, the next door neighbor that has everything. And then, then you find out after you have bought the very same things that they have, you know, that they just borrowed it from someone else or something like that. And you go into debt over and over and over again just to have the things that everybody else has. And then what, what do we discover? They don't satisfy. You just have to pay luxury tax on it. You just have to pay all the extra things for you. You have to, all the upkeep and everything like that. It's only when I understand that every single need that I have can be fulfilled through God himself. Verse 7, the way of the just is uprightness. O most upright, you weigh the path of the just. It's when I look to God for the standard, he is upright. He, he is the standard of what it means to be righteous. He is the one that I, I standard my life after. Everything else that is around me that, that tries to confuse me or, or change my way of thinking should fall away. Because the standard is always uh, God. And of course, through Jesus Christ, his son, who came to this earth to be the standard uh, for everything that we have in this world. Verse 8, yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. 
And just like many of you that have lost a loved one, we, we may remember the times that we have had for, with them. We remember the times that we spent with that person. Can you imagine the understanding that as we have a relationship with the God of the universe, what does it say in these verses? He's the desire of our soul. The only one that can fulfill that void in our very being. It's only through God himself, the remembrance of who he is. I remember, you know, when I was young, going to, a, it was First Baptist Church of Alta Loma. And, and just like, you know, uh, uh, we read in the New Testament where, where, uh, you know, Jesus is being baptized. It says, this do in remembrance of me, right? That, that, that same instance, not only with Jesus' baptism, but also with communion itself. This do in remembrance of me. Everything about our walk with God is in remembrance of what God did for us. The privilege that we have, by the way. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. I, I have the privilege of getting up early on, on Wednesday mornings. And, you know, I, I think I get up early and, and you know, I, I look at my phone and, and I see all the texts of the guys that had been up since 345 in the morning, texting each other, encouraging each other. And then that got there earlier than me to make sure that the sound is set up and, and all the, the things are already prepared so that all I have to do is just walk in and, and you know, turn on the, the stuff and, and get my notes ready and then, you know, just be able to teach. It's the privilege of knowing that even in the darkest of nights, that, that God may wake you up and you may think, oh, well, you know, why, why am I awake? You know, you, we try to go back to sleep. You understand that God wakes us up on purpose sometimes? Maybe to pray for someone. Maybe to pray for your spouse or, or maybe to pray for someone that you know is going through a hard time in their life. Or may, maybe to pray for a loved one. That God wakes us up on purpose sometimes. So that we can talk with him. God wants a relationship with us. Or as it says, even early in uh, the morning. Do you understand what Jesus used to do? The, the one who uh, had eternity literally with God. And when he was here on earth for those 30 years, what did he do? He would spend all night in prayer to his father. He would spend hours and hours worshiping God. He would spend early mornings and late nights talking to the one whom he loved the most. It's amazing to see as we read verses 10, 11, and 12, let the grace be shown to the wicked. <gasps> Yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of the uprightness, he will deal unjustly for they and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Even though that person may never recognize God, what is our calling to the, even to those that may be our enemies? And yes, I'm supposed to pray for them. Yes, I'm supposed to be nice to them. Yes, I'm supposed to reach out to them. But despite the fact that they may never accept Jesus Christ, 
you can be the one in their life now that is being Jesus to them. And God in his infinite mercy may reach out to that person and they too may know him. As it says in verse 11, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all your works in us. Who are you to a lost and a dying world? We are the salt of the world or the salt of the earth and the light on a hill. We are the taste, the flavor, the light, the guide in a dark and a flavorless world. Just as John chapter 14 verses 27 and 28 say, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. And if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I what was the longing of Jesus Christ's heart? Yes, he, he spent 33 years here on this earth. But he knew where he was going. To be with God himself. Verse 13, O Lord, our God, masters beside you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make the mention of your name. They are dead, they will not live, they are deceased, they will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation, you are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land, the nation of Israel, this most persecuted of all of the nations on the planet that have been uh, over and over again, nations tried to exterminate them. And what has God done every single time? He saved a remnant. He has brought them back. It's only because the name of the Lord will be glorified. Lord, in trouble, you have they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. That foxhole prayer, that, that prayer that we say when we're in trouble. Or, or that cry for mercy when we know that we have done wrong. That's the only time these type of people will cry out to God. Or as a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of her delivery. So have we been in your sight, O Lord. That cry from the very depths of our heart. And, you know, I, I've never, you know, been in this situation other than with my wife. You know, I've never experienced this myself. But can you imagine that kind of pain? The very depths crying out in the midst of our failure, our sin, our faults, and crying out to God. Or as verse 19 says, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, 
you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead, who is the only one that can give us everlasting life. As Jesus says in the New Testament, I am the resurrection and the life. He who comes to me shall never die. Isn't that an amazing thing? And then when you read this, you know, obscure chapter in the book, book of Isaiah, what does it do? It just comes to life. All these verses from the New Testament, as, as Jesus is probably remembering back to a lot of these verses here and alluding to them that he is the only one that can conquer death. He is the only one that can bring eternal life to a dead body. Or verses 20 and 21, come my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves as it were for a little a moment until the indignation is past before the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Of course, alluding back to the time when nation or the nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt. Chapter 27, in that day, the Lord with a severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Going all the way back to the time of creation, what was uh, Satan represented as? A serpent. This, this once magnificent creature that had been brought low. Or Psalms chapter 93, which it says exactly the same thing. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the, Lord, the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Uh, remembering what God has done. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their wa waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure, and your holiness adorns your house, O oh Lord. Forever. The next time you're at the ocean, the crashing of the waves, and you read this verse, Psalms 93, and it just makes total sense as it, as it opens up what is God compared to creation itself. Verse 2 of chapter 27 in Isaiah, it says this, In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. You see, it is not in God to be wrathful. It is not in God to have fury. It's only because of his justice. It's only because of who he is in his justice, setting the standard. There is only one way. There is only one truth. There is only one life. And it comes through Jesus Christ, who is our peace, by the way. 
Verse 6, those who come, ye shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind as in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand this perfect picture of the word atonement. Literally quoting from chapter 6 of Genesis where Noah is making the ark. And if you've ever made a boat, you understand that if you just use wood, there's going to be fissures and there's going to be places where the water can come in. And just like the ark in Genesis chapter 6, we read this in verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, this wooden ark, this wooden boat, make rooms in the ark and then cover it inside and outside with pitch. There's a covering over the ark. The same word is used here in Isaiah chapter 27 verse 9. The word kafar in the Old Testament that literally has the meaning for atonement or covering. In the case of the ark, it's this covering of pitch. In the case of Isaiah chapter 27 verse 9 and throughout the scriptures as a whole, it's the covering for our sin. Not with something that's black and sticky, tar or pitch. But how does God float your boat? He covers you in the blood of his son. He covers us in the blood of his son to cover our sins. Thank God for that. Verse 10, yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken, left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will have no, or not have mercy on them. Uh, Lo Ruhama, the same name uh, that Hosea gives his middle child. And he who formed them will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, from the north to the south, from the east to the west. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. And it shall be on that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord. In the holy mount at Israel. And this of course is referring to the time when the exiles will come back. Ezra and Nehemiah bringing all those people back from the very different parts of the world. It also happened multiple times throughout Israel's history. If you've ever read the history of Israel even after World War II. What did God do to the remnant of Israel? He brought them back. Something that the world thought was impossible to do. God has his eye on Israel. But thank God he has his eye on us too. Because guess what? One day 
we till even if you you don't make it to Israel in your lifetime here on this earth, one day you too will get to worship God on Mount Zion, the city of God, the privilege that we have to worship God and who He is. Read ahead, chapter twenty-eight. We'll start that next week. And hopefully as you read the rest of this book of Isaiah, as you read the, the book of Isaiah as a whole, that, that you see the, the contrast, pride and humility, the, the mercies of God and his judgment in every single case, as you read the book of Isaiah, it is meant to be there on purpose. And hopefully tonight, as we read through this amazing couple of chapters, the Lord spoke to you mightily. Even in obscure chapters in the Bible, God's word is alive. It is powerful. And it truly transforms lives. And so, Father, tonight as we close, I ask that you wouldn't um, close our minds or our hearts, but that you would massage these words into our heart. You would massage these words into our soul. That is only you that can bring perfect peace, even in the midst of, of all different kinds of situations. That, that it is you that brings mercy. That it is you uh, that gives us these, the strength to survive every single day when, when it feels like the world is collapsing around us. And you are the one that lifts us up and gives us the word of praise to praise you. In the worst of times, that, that humming of, of, a, of a song or, or that singing under our breath of your praises, exalting you, even in the midst of the worst times. Even if it's at our, our job or in our family or even here on this campus. Lord, help us to be the examples. I thank you for the faithfulness of these, my friends, that and family that come out every single week, that come on uh, Sundays and throughout the week, and even on a, a Wednesday when they could be relaxing at home, I ask you bless them. Help us to be the examples, the ones that are here, the ones that are listening tonight, of what it means to have perfect peace in you. Lord, I thank you so much for changing our hearts. Transform us. Help us to not take this away as an intellectual exercise, but to truly, as we leave this building, leave changed. Leave with a new purpose. Uh, leave with a, a step in our heart that is joyful. And Lord, we thank you that it only comes from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.